Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. All right, we want to get into the Word this morning. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been in Hebrews chapter 11 for several weeks now, and I want to use this as a springboard to talk about fatherhood. I want to talk about the importance of a father. Oh yeah, the kids, if you stayed in, you can head out this direction for Children's Church and go on upstairs. We got the, their Children's Church is going on up there, so uh, Kingdom Kids. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at the importance of fatherhood this morning. And uh, let's look at verse, let's look at verse 31 till the end of the chapter. This is known as the Hall of Faith. It's the story of people who did great exploits through faith. And uh, it's, it's a famous passage. Many of us are, are familiar with it. Verse 32, he's right in the middle of telling all these stories. Verse 31, rather, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. It's talking about what was accomplished through faith. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies, women who received back their dead, and they were raised to life again. Now that's the kind of ministry, that those kind of testimonies are what we all aspire to. That's, that's the kind of faith we want to enter into. That's the kind of fruit we want to produce. Those are the kind of testimonies we have, we, people get up and share. But then he transitions in this passage and begins to talk about a different group of people, a different segment of believers who walked in faith And he sets them aside both by their experience and by their reward. Listen to what he says. And there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. And so he's talking about those who were believing. God had made them promises. They were standing for those promises. But they refused deliverance. They made a conscious decision to pay it forward. They made a conscious decision to say, you know what, I'm not going to take deliverance. I'm going to stand in the midst of this so that the coming generation can receive a greater resurrection, a greater reward. And it's, it's an element of faith we usually don't think about. It's not the kind of thing we get up and give testimonies about. And we need to be careful because there are movements, there are streams within Christianity that emphasize that type of faith. They're the ones that are always talking about the martyrs. And that, that is something that we need to embrace. Because there, there's another stream of Christianity. And, and the stream of which we are, if you're not familiar with who Heartland is, the stream that we are a part of is at times in danger of rejecting suffering. Of taking all suffering as created equal and saying suffering is not from God. And the fact is we need to discern between types of suffering. We need to rightly divide the word because there is some suffering that is from the enemy and there's some suffering that's from God. And the fact is there's a whole lot of suffering that just comes from us. 
And the devil gets blamed for it or God gets blamed for it, but it's really us. And so we need to discern between those because in discerning the source, we can discern what our response needs to be to those types of suffering. And so there's, there's some movements that emphasize that and they don't emphasize deliverance because they don't have a grid work for deliverance. They only have a grid work for embracing pain. And that is, there's an element of truth to that, but it's not the whole truth any more than the other school of thought that all suffering is from the enemy and we're never to suffer. That's, there's, there's a measure of truth in that, but it's not the whole truth. And the fact is that there are, there are times where God calls us to suffer, and there are times where God calls us to deliverance. There's times where God calls us to be the avenue of deliverance for others. And we need to rightly divide the word and discern that. Now, we've preached on that before. I don't have time to get into it this morning. But uh, just go back in the podcast and look at a theology of suffering, and you can uh, that may be helpful. So, But he says there's others who refused to be released. It says, some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. So it makes a distinction between these two groups of people, both who operated in faith. The one, they operated in faith and found deliverance. They, they, broke, they had breakthrough. They were people of, of revival and breakthrough and deliverance. And they're the kind of people you want to hang around with. They're the kind of people you want to be. But there's another group of people that refused deliverance as a conscious choice. And then the author says this, of them, the world was not worthy. He not only makes a distinction between these groups in their experience, but in their reward. There was something about them. Now, we need to be careful because I was once of the school of thought that, that, that suffering was always noble. That uh, I really got into this place where I thought suffering for suffering's sake is somehow noble. And that is a, some kind of twisted theology that I bought into that isn't productive. And you can end up bringing a lot of things on yourself that aren't necessary. For me, I'm not into suffering, unless it's absolutely necessary. I'm into the rewards of suffering, not suffering itself. And so, I'm not into... I remember one time, when I was working at Teen Challenge, there was one of the female students, she was doing some work on her page, and, and I, I began to read through her work, and she was so proud of it, she, because it said, I'm praying to God to give me more suffering in my life. And I'm like, I don't want to stand by you in case he answers. You know, we don't need to pray for suffering. We need to pray for the rewards of suffering and let God choose how much we need. We don't need to look for suffering, but we need to embrace suffering that's within the will of God that is necessary to get us where we need to go and to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. Does that make sense? And so there is something about these who chose not to be delivered and of them the world is not worthy. There was a a nobility, an honor bestowed to them by heaven because of their choices. And then he goes on to say this. Now, just let me pause. I know I have a lot of dads worried this morning because you're saying this is the Father's Day message? That we're to choose to be sawn and stoned? And well, just bear with me here. Of them the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and living in caves and holes in the ground. Verse 39. Now here's where we're going to land it for Papa's Day, okay? These were all commended for their faith. It was real. This wasn't presumption. 
It wasn't misguided belief. It was true biblical faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. They hadn't put their faith in some misguided, errant prophetic word or a misinterpretation of the written word. It was a real promise and it was real faith, yet none of them received. Why? Since God had planned something better for us, not for them, but for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It's a fascinating principle. One that is often overlooked and rarely spoken about. Listen to what he says. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they, those heroes that went before us, the generation before us, only together with us, would they be made perfect. That word perfect, uh, often when you see in Scripture the word perfection, it's not talking of moral perfection as if they never did anything wrong. It's not what it's talking about. And it's not, them ta- it's not talking about them working off their moral debt by doing good things and hopefully by the end of their life they'll have more good than bad and it'll kind of balance the scale. That is foreign to Scripture. That's not a part of scriptural thinking. What it's talking about is completion or maturity. They're not going to come into all that God intended for them without us. That it's going to take us with them in the past to get all that, to become all that God intended them to be. So I want us to think about this in regards to Father's Day. So that only together with us. See, that phrase is a statement of generational partnership. What he's insinuating is that the past generation will never be all it was called to be in the eyes of God without the next generation coming into what it was called to be. And you and I, this present generation, will never move into all we're called to be, will never come into fruitfulness and maturity and fully fulfill fulfill our destiny without the next generation moving into theirs. See, there's a principle of multi-generational purpose that God is always navigating by. When you and I think of destiny and purpose, we often think of, we even use this phrase, personal destiny. Oh, my personal destiny, my personal purpose. And at one level, there's nothing wrong with you thinking like that unless you think that your personal destiny is just all personal. Your personal destiny is only part And the key word here is part of an overall flow of God's eternal purposes. And each one of us have a little part in the overall flow of God's purposes. And when we got saved, what we did is we, there's a matter of fact, there's a beautiful verse in in Ephesians chapter one. And it says that God conforms all things to the purpose of his will. I love that phrase because it doesn't say God performs everything according to his will. Catch that. God doesn't perform everything to his will. He conforms what you perform. See, God comes in after the fact and takes the mess we made and through surrender when we yield it to him, he takes that 
less than perfect performance. I, I, I don't know why I think like this, but I always picture God taking this big bent iron rod and he heats it up and kind of pulls it back into his beautiful sculpture and takes my mess and makes it part of his message. God conforms all things to the pattern of his word, of his will. And the fact is, when you and I got saved, when we, we were born into this beautiful, eternal flow of God's eternal purpose. God is always moving. He's always working. And the least, at least, he is working in a multi-generational pattern. God, is al- God always has at least three generations in view. Whenever God's working, he's looking at your past, your present, and your future. And in your past, you're connected to a previous generation. And in your future, you're connected, you're holding the hand of a future generation. Now the fact is, those hands are getting bigger all the time. You know, those, that, the hands that we were holding from the past are getting weaker, and some of them have already passed away. And the hands that we're holding in the future are getting bigger and stronger as ours are getting weaker and we're passing the baton. But we need to understand that we're always part of this multi-generational plan. And if we don't understand that, we can, at one level, make ourselves more important than we really are. But in doing so we really diminish ourselves and make ourselves so much less important than we really are. Because you are a key, you are a bridge between generations. And when God is moving, it's crucial that we fulfill our role, that we realize we're building on the labors of the past generation. That we've received things. And sometimes, some of us have received some really good things from the the last generation. And we've received a tremendous spiritual inheritance, even a physical inheritance. And we're building on that. And and we received a good name and, and, and patterns and behaviors. And we're building on that. And that's a great treasure. Some of us didn't receive a good name from the past generation. Some of us received a name tarnished by the behavior of our forefathers. But the fact is, it's our name. And we are part of this family history. And we can step in and we can be the generation that redeems not only the name, but the purpose of that family line. The fact is, God has a purpose for every family. That built within you, in your genetic code, is a purpose in God's grand plan in eternity. There's a reason God established your family. We see this all through Scripture. Matter of fact, God repeatedly refers to himself in this manner, and Jesus refers to the Father in this manner, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With beginning with Abraham, God began to identify himself with a man, and then a family, and then three generations, and then the three generations became a nation. And that's how God always moves. What God does is he finds a man or a woman that are going to establish God's purposes for that family. We know that Abraham came out of rank paganism. His his forefathers were, were idol worshipers, 
But God spoke to Abraham, uh, revealed himself. At that time, his name was Abram. He revealed himself, and the reason he became Abraham is God entered into covenant, and God gave him a portion of his name, Jehovah. And so Abram took that on. He, he became Abram, became Abraham, portion of God's name. And God took on Abram's name and said, I am now the God of Abraham. And they identified with one another. And with that, God established a covenant people. God always starts with a person. So I want to encourage you this morning. If you, came, if you were like Abram and you came out of a bunch of rank paganism, you came out of a family that they're, they're fa- you didn't receive a good inheritance, you may not have received a good name from your mother and father. There may have been a lot of bad things that were coming down the pipeline from that previous generation. I'm telling you, through honor And through faith and through the blood of Jesus, you can shut off the flow of the negative and honor the good, however big or small it was in that previous generation, and begin to redeem that name and build on that name and mine out that hidden purpose deep within your family line. I think we talked about it a few weeks ago in Psalm 73. It says that God established a testimony in Jacob. It means that God was writing a story, this ongoing testimony of his faithfulness in this man Jacob. Jacob's name literally meant deceiver. But God became the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the deceiver, the heel grabber, the the con man. And God redeemed that and identified himself with this man. And he was developing a story in Jacob. It's interesting because Jacob wrestled with God and his name was no longer Jacob. God changed his name and began to call him Israel, which means prince with God because he, over, he wrestled with God and lived. He, he said, I saw God face to face and lived. He fought with God and he won and he won by losing. Let me just give you a hint. If you ever wrestle with God, you better lose because if you lose, you win. But if you win, you lose. You win an argument with God, you're on the losing end. But if you let him win, you win. And so God changed his name. But God doesn't identify himself in that context, this multi-generational pattern. He doesn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He does say, I'm the God of Israel. But in so doing, he's identifying himself with the family and then the nation that came out of one man. But it all began with this one man and God had a plan, a dream that he put within this one man and he began to relate with him. And this one man had a dream of having a son and the promise was that this man with a barren wife, they cried out to God and God promised him a son. They produced one. The one couple produced one son and the one son produced two sons and then the two sons produced 12 and then it really began to cook in the fourth generation where they began to influence nations. There was this multi-generational plan that God has. And the fact is, God has a multi-generational plan for every one of us. And if we don't understand that, we can sell ourselves short. We can be so focused on the minuscule little blip on the radar of history that you and I are going to produce that we fail to really invest in the future. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in, in Genesis 37. It says, it's talking about Jacob, and it's halfway through his life, and different translations translate this different. 
But literally, the, word, the wording is the way the old NIV used to translate it. And what it says is that Jacob dwelled in the land of his father Isaac. And then the very next verse, verse 2, it says, and this is the story of Jacob. Some will say this is the generations or the family, and, and really that's what it's implying, but the word is the history or the story of Jacob. And the very next verse says, Joseph, a boy of 17. Those two little verses are fascinating because they, they, they frame Jacob as the pivot between two generations. Jacob is living in the land of his father Isaac. And the fact is, every one of us are living in the land that our forefathers produced. I'm talking emotionally, I'm talking spiritually. We, we, we are given something from the previous generation, and then it's up to us to steward it, good or bad. But by faith... And by the blood of Christ, we can redeem those things and begin to build a foundation for the next generation. So that the next generation inherits something better than we did. Even if you have a great inheritance from your father, that you can leave a greater inheritance for your children and your grandchildren. And so it says that Jacob dwelled in the land of his father... And so it's talking about the previous generation. And then it says, this is his story. And then it begins to talk about his children. And the fact is that Jacob's story was his children, not his own life. Because Jacob was the story of Isaac. And, and Joseph was the story of Jacob. And if we don't understand that, if we don't understand that God is always operating multi-generationally, if we don't understand that, then we can fail to really invest in our own story. We think that we're trying to be someone significant and trying to achieve something personally and our personal destiny, and we can miss the part we play in this multi-generational story and the purposes God's trying to establish in our family. God really wants us to get a hold of this as a church family. That there's something God does when he, he gets a hold of a man or a woman. And then he establishes a family. And then he establishes a tribe. And then a nation. And what happens is, you look all through history. Movements came out of the loins of men and women of God that got a hold of God, had an encounter with God. And entire movements that touched thousands and even millions of people. But it started with a man or a woman. And it was a story that God was trying to write. And people would we'd be pulled into the, the wake of their story. And God would build something. That's why we're so big on, we, we use the terminology that you need to find your tribe. You need to find the kind of people you're supposed to run with in the kingdom. Because your tribe has a specific genetic code. And when you find them, there's something that resonates within you. Man, they talk my language. They're, they're about what I'm about. Man, when, when I hear them, when, I, when I'm around them, it's something awakes in me. And it's like, this is what I've been looking for. When you find that, you find your inheritance. Because the fact is that the promised land was divided among tribes. That the way to get their inheritance is they had to know their tribal affiliation. Because your destiny is not merely a personal destiny. Your destiny is connected to the people you're supposed to run with. The family of which you're supposed to be a part. And that is true physically. Your inheritance biologically is connected to you being able to prove your genetic identity, or you can be adopted in. 
but it has to be a legal thing. And I, inheritance in the physical, financial realm is a legal thing. And it has to do with you proving your identity. The same is true spiritually. That God will call groups of people, he'll call men and women, who then become a family and then become a movement. And those men and women, those families and those movements carry specific truths. If you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's fascinating to study their story through that lens. The fact is that there were certain truths that God was going to communicate and reveal about himself through Abraham and then build on that through Isaac and then build on that through Jacob. And they were all three unique expressions of God. The facets of God's character. And even though they were part of the old covenant, before we had this full revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see this revealed in Father Abraham, Isaac the son who was laid on the altar, and then Jacob who lived under the dealings of the Holy Spirit. Nobody, none of this, these three patriarchs and this, this third, these three generations lived under more dealings of God by the Spirit than Jacob. Because he was ornery cuss. I mean, he, he, was, he was a man of God, but he wasn't very honest at the beginning. Matter of fact, you could make a real case that there was a streak of them saving their fat and lying about things throughout these generations. But God still used them. They suffered consequences for that. But God redeemed them. God had a purpose, a plan. And when they entered into faith, God began this eternal uh, plan that, that they all stepped into. And they, they, they walked in this uh, calling and God was willing to identify himself with them. The question for us this morning is, what is your message? What is the truth that God's wanting to reveal through you and through the generations that flow from you and from the generations that you flow from? What is the unique message of your family tree? What is the unique thing that you carry? I was praying last night just thinking about these principles and and, uh, I was thinking about Kenneth Hagin Sr., that great man of God, many looked at him as a prophet, many as an apostle, many looked at him as a teacher, an evangelist. I don't know what he was. This guy was a man of God. And there were, there were huge movements that came from him. There, was, there, are, there are a number of strong movements in Christianity today that flowed from Kenneth Hagin. And the fact is there was a lot of opposition that came against him, even through some of the movements I've been a part of in the past. And it's because they misunderstood him. He was a pioneer. He was establishing fresh truths. He was establishing things that were, were new ideas. And he, he, pioneers always come up against opposition. The, the first ones to begin to speak truths or the first ones to restore truths are going to suffer great persecution from the body of Christ. There's an old saying that we often build monuments to dead men of God with the stones we killed them with when they were alive. We stone them to death, and then when they're dead, well, he was a pretty good guy. Let's build a monument. Man, he was a great man of God. We want, we want, to, we want to embrace them in their death, but persecute them in their life. And that is the role of a pioneer in, in a very real sense. 
It goes back to that principle that we talked about last week. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, verse 13. The hidden things belong to the Lord, but those that are revealed belong to us and our children's children. What God is speaking of is the role of revelation in his ongoing plan in human history. That God is always moving. And the way he pushes things forward is he releases revelation. There are hidden things. There's things that nobody knows. They belong to God. But the moment he releases them, they become ours. But he says this, and they belong to us and our children's children. Why does he talk about three generations in regards to revelation? Because God establishes new things through generational momentum. When he talks about in this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, that only together with us will the previous generation move into all that God intended. That's my translation, but it's accurate from the Greek, okay? That only together with the present generation will the past generation moved into its full reward become all that it was intended to be. And only with the next generation will we become all we were meant to be. And so that demands that we honor the past and invest in the future. And that our time on earth is largely uh, unpacking what our forefathers gave to us and giving something to the next generation, really seeing that they're launched well. And not so, being so caught up in writing our own little chapter, our own little blip on the radar of history, that we neglect for the next generation to start well. That we've got to give them things. We've got to give them all that God has shown us. When it says that the things that are, are revealed are for us and our children's children, he's talking about the value of revelation. The value of the things that God has shown us. Revelation is not cheap. I'm not talking about information. Information is disconnected from life. Information is about theory. I would propose to you that heaven is not a place of information and theory. Heaven is a place of revelation and experience. And when we learn about God, we're learning about him by experiencing him around the throne. And God's intention was not that we would have the knowledge of good and evil disconnected from the tree of life. It's supposed to be a bowl of fruit where we're, we're, we're having knowledge through experience and through life. Jesus said this. It's an interesting little phrase. and I think it's John chapter 8. He said, They who follow after me shall never walk in darkness. They shall have the light of life. Think about that. The, he who follows after me will never walk in darkness. He will have the light of life. He's saying that the life in God, as you follow him, as you keep in step with God, will become the light so that you can go further. Life itself will give you light. In other, what he's talking about is the experiential living relationship with God that brings us into deeper experiences. And we're never meant to have theory in our head that goes beyond the character in our heart. 
And so what God does is he leads us through experiences and reveals himself as the answer to those experiences. And when we live in that way, rather than this cold, dry theory of theology, and I love theology, but theology needs to be living. If it's just this cold, dry theory where we're learning facts about God, but it doesn't change us, that is arguably the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice it wasn't just the tree of the knowledge of evil. It was also the tree of the knowledge of good. We are to eat of the tree of life. And we learn of him through our experience. And so what, what, how does God do that? He leads us in life and he leads us into situations where he is the only answer that we have. He will repeatedly bring us to the end of ourselves and then reveal himself as the answer. It's that old idea that Everybody wants a healing, but no one wants to be sick. Everybody wants to know God is Jehovah Jireh, but no one wants a financial need. But the fact is, those who know God as Jehovah Jireh, my provider, it was, a, it was a, a designation God gave to himself. He gave it when Abram was going to sacrifice Isaac, and God stopped him and said, I will provide. And from then on, God was known as Jehovah Jireh. That revelation of God as the provider came out of a very intense situation. So God will take you into situations and he will put you in a situation where the only hope is a revelation of him. That he has got to become the answer to your need. And that's the way God keeps himself alive. Information is simply facts disconnected from needs and disconnected from life. It's theory. Revelation is always connected to real and living needs where you are constantly being cornered. So here, here's the good news and the bad news all in one. If you want to be a person that goes from revelation to revelation, always growing, not just in your knowledge of God, but in a revelation, an experience of God, in a real relationship, if you want to do that, then it's going to be a... Wild ride. Because the way in which God is going to reveal himself is taking you into situations where you are in need, where you take risks, and he rescues you with a fresh revelation of himself. Does that make sense? And so this thing of revelation is key. But here's the deal. When God gives you a revelation, it's not just for you. It's for you and your children's children. And like Isaac, Abram came out of paganism. Abram was the man of relationship, of intimacy. He came out of rank paganism, had a revelation of God, and he was a first-generation believer. But whereas Abram got it by revelation and relationship, Isaac got it by inheritance. Isaac was born into this thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as we place a value on what the first generation paid to get what we receive for free. But see, if we don't understand this multi-generational thing that goes on, then we can fail to honor. You know what the word honor means? Value. There's an old saying. Easy money spends easy. And when money comes easy to you, it's easy to squander it. That's why when you see a very wealthy family that raises their children with a strong work ethic that can then take the next generation of that inheritance and build it rather than squander it, you're looking at not only wealth, 
but wisdom. They, they not only passed on the wealth they accumulated, but the wisdom that helped them do so. And that's what that verse means in Deuteronomy chapter 29. That when we receive revelation, it's not just for us. It's for our children's children. I don't want my kids to have to go through everything I've gone through in God. I want them to go through their own stuff. Because I know the only way they're going to take this inheritance in the Olson clan and push it further and grow the inheritance in our family. And for us to fulfill the purpose for which God established this family line of the Olsons, they have to go through their own things. But I don't want them to have to go through the same things. They should receive for free what I paid a price for. But they'll only do so if I have a revelation of this multi-generational thing. That there are truths. We got to catch this. Okay. Revelation is the wealth transfer of heaven. In the kingdom of God, wealth transfer happens through revelation. You taking what you learned in your living, breathing relationship with God. You hammered it out in secret. You went through some trials. You were at the end of your rope and you tested God and you found him faithful. And you give those things to the next generation. So that every generation doesn't start from scratch. That we don't have to start over. You see, there's a bias, or a prejudice, not a bias, a prejudice in the United States. We have a beef with people who are born with an inheritance. And we've, we've got this thing called the self-made man. That, that thing of the self-made man is not only a fallacy, it is a tragedy. Because it discounts inheritance. And it forces you to start at zero. And it's tragic For us to start at zero and have to fight for what the last generation already achieved. But we do so when we don't honor what they had and when the previous generation doesn't understand the principle of multi-generational work in God. And so the fact is there are things that God has revealed to you as an individual believer that now have become part of your inheritance. that That revelation... According to scripture, is no longer kept by God. It's been given to you to steward that thing. And it's not just for you, it's for your children's children. That may be revelation on how to run a business. It may be revelation on how to raise children. It may be revelation on how to have a good marriage. It may be revelation on how to extract aluminum out of the ground. I don't know. But the fact is that... that, that uh, Intellectual rights that God has granted to you can be passed on from generation to generation. And when we understand that, we begin to value those things, we treasure them, and we realize the most valuable thing we have to give to our kids are the things we learned in God. And it's not about them figuring it out on their own. It's about us giving them those things so they can build for the next generation. Not just giving them financial wealth, but give them the wisdom that was able to achieve what we have. So we need to discern what is the family story that God is trying to build through your life. That's not some isolated situation where God was establishing a story in Jacob, a testimony in Jacob. God is writing a story through every one of us. And it's incumbent upon us, it's crucial that we evaluate the past generation 
and we come to some conclusions. This is the thing that I carry. It's important that we understand what is our inheritance as a church. There are certain things that we carry as a congregation that other churches don't. It doesn't make us better than them. It just makes us unique. And it's our inheritance. And this isn't some competition. Well, we're a better church. Than that. That's foolishness. But it's equally foolish for us to diminish what God has given us and makes us unique. Because it's part of our inheritance and part of our assignment. And we've got to hold this. And we've got to make sure we're instilling it in the next generation. So that they can build and that in two, three generations, Heartland will become not just a family, but it will become a nation of believers that affects history. What did God do when he found Abram? He said, I'm going to bless you. And in turn, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. There's a principle in scripture. It says first for the Jew, the original Jew was Abram. First for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. So God wants to bless you so that you can become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Often people will look at that as a financial promise, and I believe it is. But it's so much more than that. There's something that you carry, something of your relationship with God. There are things that God wants to reveal to you to loose on planet earth that are history-changing, game-making, game-changing revelations and and things that you're to carry and to, to exemplify to the rest of the world. And your kids are supposed to carry those. So dad, your role is to honor the past. And some of you, because of the pain that was passed to you from the past generation, you're in danger of not valuing the inheritance you did receive. Your dad may have not even known he had it. Your dad may have squandered that thing and buried it, but I'm telling you, you have a deed in the spirit to that inheritance, the purposes of God for your family, simply because of your genetic code. And by honoring them and saying, God, I know that hurt people hurt people, and I bless them for, who, for, for the good things in their life, and Lord, I forgive them for the bad, but I want that inheritance. I'm not going to allow this thing to remain buried and have my kids start with nothing in the spirit. I'm going to pick that thing up. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to clean it off, and I'm going to reestablish that thing for the next generation. We need to understand that when God raises up families, there are very real things in the spirit that are passed down. Scripture's clear that the sin is passed to the third and fourth generation. And we can take care of that through vicarious repentance and, and all those things. We can, we, can, we can fight against those iniquities in our family lines. And it's, it's healthy for us to evaluate what were these sin patterns in our family line so we can deal with them. That's healthy. My personal family, a lot of alcoholism and this other stuff. And, and it, as soon as I got out from underneath the authority of my parents, that came on me. And I had to repent and get out from underneath that. But here's the good news. Righteousness is passed to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. So I guarantee there was some righteous granddaddy back there in your lineage. Somebody back there knew Jesus. Somebody back there walked with God. And you can reach back in there and grab that inheritance. All of us are related to Noah, who was a righteous man. We can claim his inheritance. 
But I'm telling you, there's something about your family that God wants to establish in your life, through your life. And as you understand that, you can begin to honor the past and invest in the future. Don't let the sins of the past, yours or anybody else's, rob you of the inheritance and the weight that your family is supposed to carry. Let's go ahead and stand. I want to read you a couple things because I didn't get to it this morning. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when God refers to himself by this multi-generational planet, speaks four things. I'm just going to read them and we're going to close. Number one, a multi-generational plan. God is always working on a much grander scale than we realize. For him, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. God just began to work in your family. Understand it. And when you get a vision for that, you can step into the flow of what God is already doing. Number two, a multi-generational momentum. We need to realize that there's momentum that happens that we build on the labors of our forefathers. Number three, the inheritance of purpose. It is a fact that God should be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But he's not. He's known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because one son dishonored the inheritance and one honored it. Man, this needs to be very sobering for all of us. That Esau despised the birthright which gave him access to the inheritance. One wanted it. And he, was, he, was, he was a rascal, I'm telling you. Jacob was not this you know, upright man of integrity. He had some issues. Lied to his dad. He seized the inheritance through a lie. But God honored the hunger and beat the lie out of him. Okay? But he honored the hunger... He honored the hunger. And God was willing to become known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the inheritance and the destiny and the purpose of God. Took a turn and jumped on another guy. And he picked up the mantle for a family and carried that thing. And I'm telling you, your dad may have dropped it, your family may have dropped it for generations, but that thing can take a turn and jump back up out of the ground and jump on you if you make a decision to do so. He became known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And then I'm going to close with this. I know you're thinking, Pastor, you said you were going to close, and now you're not. God has a unique purpose for each family. He establishes families for specific purposes to manifest facets of his character, reveal, carry, and establish certain truths. What are yours? And number four, there was an unfolding revelation of God through the unique experiences of these three patriarchs. And we talked about that, so let's pray. Father, bless each one of these this morning. And Lord, I'm asking, just put your hands up before the Lord. Lord, we're asking for a revelation, a personal insight into the purpose for which you established our family. Lord, why are we here in this hour in human history? Lord, in your grand plan, your eternal purpose, you're moving forward and doing things across the nations. And, and Lord, we know from this passage that our work doesn't end at the grave. We enter into a further ministry in heaven, the great prayer meeting of heaven. But Lord, we want to understand this side, the purpose of our life. And so Lord, I'm asking that you'd begin to unpack that to each of us. I just feel like some of you right now, God's wanting to reveal to you some of the the inheritance that you have. And Steve Hutspeth, I'm telling you, there was something on your mom and dad. The reason that brought them to this region is still on your life. 
and you ran from that, but when you got saved, that thing came right back on you. And lo and behold, the little bride you married carries the same thing. It's an amazing thing. And you guys are such a strange couple because you're so prophetic, both of you. And usually, God puts one that's not prophetic with one that is, so they, you know, and they're having to help each other along. But you guys are both prophetic, and that was on your family. There was a hunger that caused your family to be sojourners and pick up their life and move here to be part of something that was a prophetic move, and here you are. You couldn't run from it. And God allowed circumstances and through own choices, but God cornered you guys and revealed himself as the need. And what happened? It came right on you. And for some reason, you found yourself here at Heartland. It's an amazing thing. And I want to encourage you, Steve, there's, that thing is on your family, and it's part of what you carry. And that thing is to grow in the next generation and the next one that's coming. You're going to have grandbabies that are going to be prophesying. And I believe a granddaughter... I believe you're going to have a little granddaughter with little anointed hands. I see her laying hands on people. Amen. And and for the rest of us, we need to discern. And so, Father, we just thank you. And, Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, to enter into that. And, Lord, I pray a special blessing over every dad. Lord, anoint the hands of these wives to rub our feet today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.